Hi everyone, Dr. Casey Grover here for a bonus episode. I was asked to give a lecture to colleagues in primary care, emergency medicine, and addiction medicine on medications for alcohol use disorder. The lecture is very similar to episode 12 of this podcast on medications for alcohol use disorder, but I took a bit of a different tone and a different perspective. We, as a medical community, have made huge strides in how often we are treating opiate use disorder with medications. In fact, in my county here in California, all emergency physicians except one have their X waiver. We are routinely offering and prescribing buprenorphine for opiate use disorder. Given the huge burden that alcohol places on our society in terms of emergency department visits, illness, and death, it's time that we start treating alcohol use disorder just as aggressively as we do opiate use disorder. Now, the meds for alcohol use disorder aren't quite as effective as the meds for opiate use disorder, but as you're about to hear, if we started prescribing medications for alcohol use disorder broadly across the United States, we would make a huge difference. Sorry about the audio quality. I recorded this lecture on my iPhone while I was giving it. I hope you find it helpful. And if you like the perspective, please share it with a colleague. Here we go. So first of all, just wanted to say thank you for having me. Um, it's always a fantastic meeting. This is such a fantastic group. So I'm gonna make a plea to you today that we treat alcohol use disorder the way we treat opiate use disorder. And I'm gonna see if I can sell you on that perspective. So let's start with the why. According to the CDC, 95,000 Americans die every year from excessive alcohol use. And there's actually some 2022 data that would suggest that that number has actually gone up. And we're at 140,000 deaths per year related to alcohol use. Despite that impressive number, only about 8% of people with problematic alcohol use receive treatment. And that statistic doesn't specify which type of treatment. When you look at medications, less than 9% of people who need treatment for alcohol use disorder actually receive an FDA-approved prescription medication to treat alcohol use disorder. So there is a huge mismatch there. 140,000 deaths a year, and yet less than 9% received an FDA-approved medication. So another part of this is that I think we are all pretty aware of the perspective of harm reduction for opioids, meaning we offer people syringes, we offer safe injection sites, we offer naloxone, we offer wound care kits. We're pretty good with harm reduction for injection drug use and opioids, but it seems like with alcohol, we tell people you have to stop drinking. So there's almost a double standard there. Now, granted, would I like my patients to stop drinking when they have alcohol use disorder? Absolutely. But if they can't, is a reduction in alcohol use still a win? And I think the answer is yes. And so I think there's some emerging work happening on harm reduction for alcohol use disorder. So here is my plea. We need to start using medications for alcohol use disorder the way we do opiate use disorder. Reducing alcohol consumption can still be a win, the so-called harm reduction for alcohol use disorder. And if you have a patient who has an alcohol use disorder, please treat them. I think that's a pretty simple plea. So I'm going to give you kind of a lineup here of some of the FDA-approved medications for alcohol use disorder, kind of go through a little bit about each, kind of what I do in my practice. And then as a bonus, we'll talk about gabapentin, which is not FDA-approved, but actually has some pretty good data that it works. So 
The, the four medications again, disulfiram, naltrexone, we're gonna talk about PO and extended release IM, and then also acamprosate. So, disulfiram I think is the one that patients actually think of most. As a reminder, the way it works is it blocks acetaldehyde dehydrogenase, so it basically causes an unpleasant buildup of the metabolite acetaldehyde when people drink, which makes people feel sick. And that's called the disulfiram reaction. So the idea is you make people feel sick when they drink, so they won't drink. What's interesting is if you drink one or two drinks, the disulfiram reaction is not that bad. But if you drink heavily on disulfiram, acetaldehyde is exceptionally toxic and can actually cause cardiac collapse and cardiac arrest. I have seen it once, and it was absolutely petrifying. Uh, the person was bradycardic, hypotensive. You know, the, the paramedics were going to start CPR. And I didn't know about this until I had this case come through my emergency department. Outside of drinking, the major side effect is drowsiness, and the contraindications would be cardiovascular disease, because if you do drink on disulfiram, it's very taxing on the cardiovascular system. Active alcohol use would obviously be a contraindication, because again, it'll cause this severe disulfiram reaction, and then hepatic disease, because it's hepatically cleared. The dosing is pretty straightforward. It's 250 to 500 milligrams a day. And the question I really want to ask for each of these medications is how well does it work? Unfortunately for disulfiram, the answer is not well. When people are not supervised, there's not a lot of incentive for them to take it. And if they wait, then it washes out of their system and they can resume drinking. So in certain circumstances, like a very tight uh, spouse uh, kind of dyad where one spouse is really diligent and committed in supervising the other and getting accountability or like a sibling or a parent, again, that accountability of, did you take it today? I want to see you take it today. Really, it's a partnership, really, as I understand it, to make it work well. And for some people, it does. Um, but for the vast majority of people, it doesn't work. They either get sick and stop taking it and resume drinking or just don't take it at all because they want to drink. And again, if we're thinking about harm reduction, this is not a choice for harm reduction because if they drink on the medication, it can make them very sick. So the next one in our quiver of treatments for alcohol use disorder is naltrexone. And I don't know about any of you in your training, but in emergency medicine, I got zero of this. So this is something that I've learned post-residency on my own. And obviously, since I sat for the addiction medicine boards last week, I'm up to date on this. So interestingly, alcohol is thought to be rewarding because it causes the release of endogenous opioids, which causes the release of dopamine in the pleasure centers of the brain. So apparently alcohol in and of itself is not necessarily pleasurable, but in some people it causes a release of opioids, which then are triggering of dopamine release. And that may involve some of the reasons why kind of a, there's a genetic predisposition to uh, alcohol use disorder. But in any case, if you give people naltrexone or even naloxone, when people drink alcohol, it blocks the effects of those opioids and then makes alcohol less reinforcing because you don't get that dopamine release. Um, major side effects would include kind of sleepiness, uh, GI upset, nausea, dyspepsia. And then in the long-acting injectable formulation, it can cause an injection site reaction. Um, some patients will also notice that other things besides alcohol are less pleasurable. So the uh, addiction psychiatrist Anna Lemke from Stanford had a, a patient who had to stop taking naltrexone because it made food taste so much less pleasurable. 
And that's part of the reason why the diet drug Contrave, which contains naltrexone, is thought to be effective because it reduces the pleasurable effect of food. It's also why naltrexone may be helpful in gambling as well, is because a lot of these pleasurable activities involve the release of endogenous opioids and then therefore the release of dopamine in the pleasure centers of the brain. So um, when can you not give naltrexone? Obviously, if somebody is dependent on opioids, you will cause withdrawal. And then it is hepatically cleared, so somebody who has significant hepatic insufficiency should not get it, and that's usually thought to be LFTs five times above the normal limit. The dosing is pretty easy. Um, It's 50 milligrams a day oral, and if you want to avoid side effects, you can start at 25 milligrams for a few days and go up to 50. And then it's 380 milligrams uh, once monthly as an IM long-acting injectable. Again, my favorite question, how well does it work? When it's given orally, the number needed to treat to prevent a return to drinking after abstinence is about 20, and the number needed to treat to prevent one episode of binge drinking is 12. So not as good as buprenorphine or methadone, but I'm going to try to convince you that if we really applied this broadly, it would make a massive difference in what alcohol does to Americans. There's a little less data on the number needed to treat for the uh, extended release intramuscular, but I did find one study and I calculated it myself. The number needed to treat to reduce binge drinking is about six. The next one is a campersate, and this is one I've not used in my practice and I think is used a lot less, and there's a couple of reasons why, which I'll describe. But the mechanism is interesting. It actually acts a little bit like alcohol in the brain. It increases activity of GABA and it decreases activity of glutamate, which if you remember is a lot of how alcohol actually works. Um, It's not fully understood how a campersate is helpful for alcohol use disorder. Um, It's renally cleared, so it can be used in patients with uh, liver disease from alcohol. And the major side effect is diarrhea. The other issue is that you really need to be off alcohol for about 10 to 14 days before you start. And for some people, that's a tough barrier uh, to get to. It is apparently very helpful in helping people who have disrupted sleep from alcohol get their sleep-wake cycle back. And then the other issue is it has a weird dosing. They come in 333 milligram tablets and you give 666 milligrams three times a day. So it's two pills three times a day, which compliance can be an issue. But looking at, again, how well does it work? The number needed to treat to reduce a return to drinking after abstinence is 12. And the number needed to treat to reduce any drinking after a period of abstinence is nine. So again, not, not great, not as well as, you know, not, not as good as buprenorphine or methadone, but certainly, again, if you apply it across America, this could be pretty significant. And this is one that I didn't know about before I started studying this, and this is gabapentin. And I only thought gabapentin was for withdrawal, but it turns out it can be used for alcohol use disorder as well. So we all know GABA. Again, the mechanism, like a campersate, is not exactly clear, but it appears to potentiate the effects of GABA in the brain. The major side effects, dizziness and somnolence. Um, If you didn't know, it's excreted, essentially unchanged renally. So it should not be used in people with significant renal disease. And I like it because it can also be used to treat withdrawal. How well does it work? This I thought was really interesting. So after someone is abstinent, the number needed to treat at 900 milligrams a day is 14. That's again to reduce drinking after abstinence. And at 1,800 milligrams a day, it's eight. To reduce binge drinking, the number needed to treat at 900 milligrams a day is 14. 
and the number needed to treat at 1,800 milligrams a day to reduce binge drinking is only four. That's pretty darn good. So I wanted to find out what do those numbers needed to treat actually mean. So I looked it up, and it turns out across the nation, we see 130 million emergency department visits a year. It turns out that the National Institute of Health estimates that about 18.5% of ED visits are related to alcohol use. And there's actually been some studies that have shown as many as 70% of emergency department visits have been related to alcohol use on weekends. About 5% of the general U.S. population has an alcohol use disorder. And there's a couple of different estimates on how prevalent alcohol use disorder is in emergency department patients, but it's probably as high as about 15%. So let's imagine that we took those 130 million emergency department visits a year and 15% of those patients had an alcohol use disorder. If we give every one of those patients a med for alcohol use disorder, what would happen? And don't forget, this is only the emergency department population. You can only imagine how much bigger this effect would be is if we applied it to our primary care and urgent care practices as well. So if we gave everyone with an alcohol use disorder in the emergency department oral naltrexone, we'd reduce a return to drinking after abstinence in 975,000 people. We'd reduce binge drinking in 1,626,000 people. If we gave everyone in the emergency department with an alcohol use disorder oral acamprosate, we'd reduce a return to drinking after abstinence in 1,626,000 patients, and we'd reduce drinking in general in 2,166,000 people. If we gave everyone in the emergency department with an alcohol use disorder oral gabapentin, and this is at the dose 1,800 milligrams a day, we'd reduce drinking after abstinence in 2,436,000 people, and we'd reduce binge drinking in 4,875,000 people. Again, that's only for the emergency department. You can imagine if we applied it to primary care and urgent care, those numbers would balloon. So hopefully I've convinced you that we can make a huge difference by broadly applying medications for alcohol use disorder to our patient population the way we've done with buprenorphine. So what do I do in my practice? Well, in the emergency department, usually my patients are still drinking. So they're not a candidate for disulfiram because they still have alcohol in their system. And if I give them disulfiram, they could get a disulfiram reaction. And they're not a good candidate for a acamprosate because usually you need 10 to 14 days before you can start. But naltrexone and gabapentin, you're good to go. So I give everyone, unless there's a contraindication, naltrexone and gabapentin. And gabapentin has the added bonus that it can be given also to reduce withdrawal symptoms. And what's cool is kudos to doctors on duty and the county clinics in Monterey County because they are offering Vivitrol. That's the long-acting injectable naltrexone. So if I start the patient on old naltrexone and they do well, there's a follow-up that's easy to get for patients to go from oral to long-acting injectable. Um, I usually start my patients at 50 of naltrexone. If they're worried about side effects, I'll start at 25. There is also another way to give naltrexone for alcohol use disorder, and this is called the Sinclair Method. Um, this is a great book called The Cure for Alcoholism by Roya Scappa. And basically, it's, it's, a, it's a different approach. With naltrexone, when we're prescribing it medically, most often it's given as a once-a-day dose, and anytime alcohol is consumed, that endogenous opiate release is blunted, and, and eventually it will decrease cravings 
We encourage patients to be abstinent and naltrexone helps. The Sinclair method uses pharmacologic extinction. It's a little bit different. Um, it's a little more controversial. It's very popular in Finland where it was discovered. And when I asked kind of our, our guru on addiction medicine, he didn't like it because it allows drinking. Um, and there's a slippery slope there because the method actually requires drinking to work. So here's how it works. If you drink, you get an opiate release and dopamine release. And eventually over time, like Pavlov and the bell, two unrelated stimuli become linked in the brain. So when you're a teenager, before you've started drinking, the sound of a can opening or the sound of a, a bottle opener or the smell of wine doesn't trigger anything. Once you begin drinking, you get an association between the sight, smells, and sounds of alcohol and dopamine release, and they link. And so what naltrexone does is you take it an hour before you drink, and then when you drink, you don't get that opiate release, and then you don't get the dopamine release. So you use naltrexone to pharmacologically extinguish the connections between alcohol and pleasure in the brain. So there's actually some data that it is 80% effective at treating alcohol use disorder and allowing people to return to what is considered normal drinking. But again, I asked our colleague down here uh, in Monterey and he said, well, but I don't wanna give my patients something that encourages them to drink I'm gonna stick with naltrexone as a, a means for abstinence. So if you're interested, it's a great read. I also covered it on my podcast. I don't know, I, 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 as I move into addiction medicine, am I gonna offer people the Sinclair method? I don't know. If somebody's failed everything else, it's probably worth a try, um, but I think probably more traditional methods um, are probably where I'm gonna start uh, right off the bat. And that is the end of the lecture that I gave. I certainly hope you found it helpful. One thing that I forgot to mention during the lecture is the dosing of gabapentin for alcohol use disorder. It is given as 600 to 1800 milligrams daily divided TID. Thank you for listening and thank you for what you do. And don't forget, treating substance use disorders saves lives.